Good morning, Berean family. There we go. There we go. My name is Brother Lentrell. It is a privilege for me to bring the word to you this morning. We're going to be continuing our series in 1 Corinthians that is entitled Different. Different. And this morning we'll be looking at chapter 3 and 4 of 1 Corinthians. Again, the title of this message is Perspectives, and the title of the series is Different. Studies of Corinth, Paul's letters to the Corinthians. My wife, dear wife, is here this morning, and I know she's praying for me. Imagine if I asked my wife, what are your expectations for me as a father? We have two young children, and imagine if I asked her, what do you expect from me as a father? And she said, well, that's easy, Lynn I know right away. I want you to buy them whatever they want, spend all day with them, and oh yeah, never ever make them cry. Got a few laughs. Thank you. <laughs> oh, and my, by the way, my wife would never give me expectations like that. Or imagine someone at the end of the service, maybe a guy named Sam storming up to a pastor at the end of the service, and he tells the pastor, I really enjoy your message, and I love this church, and I want to join your church. I only have a few expectations for you as my new pastor. I need you to entertain me, to feed me, and answer each of my six phone calls a day. We know that, you know, this is outrageous. What's wrong with these expectations? Well, number one, they're not biblical. And number two, these expectations really fail to realize who a father or a pastor is. And so the same is true with the Corinthians. They had a misunderstanding of their ministers. They were failing to understand who their ministers were and what they were called to do. And so today we're going to see Paul give them the proper perspective. And before we get into the word of God, would you pray for me? We need God this morning to bless our service. God, we do pray. I pray for grace for me as I proclaim your word to my brothers and sisters, those watching online. Father, help me to be faithful to your text and to proclaim your word in a manner that is pleasing to you. God, I recognize that you are here. You're in the audience, and I want to please you. And God, I also want your people to be edified and encouraged and for them to have the right perspective of our leaders and ministers. So, Father, do what only you can do by your spirit, and that is work and transform our lives through your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to start off reading chapter 3, verses 18 to 23, and it's really the application of this text, but I think it will be helpful to kind of put the end in mind for us. Where is Paul going as he argues and gives a solution to their misconception of ministers? So look there with me, chapter 3, verses 18 to 23. And Paul writes, let no one deceive himself. If any among you think that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he might become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in man, for all are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. And so again, the title of this message is Perspective. 
Since verse 10 of chapter 1, Paul has been dealing with this issue of division in the church. And at the essence of their problems and divisions was this fundamental error. Although the Corinthians belonged to God, they were living as though they belonged to the world. That's the problem. They were, they were living as though they belonged to man. And they were giving themselves to the wisdom of the world. Excuse me, I have to drink some water quickly. I have the worst case of cotton mouth I ever had in my life. But anyway, so Paul is, is wanting to call them back to this right perspective. And the truth is, sin blinds us. Sin blinds us. And the pride and the sin of these Corinthians had blinded them to the truth of the servants God had given them. They were blinded to the truth of God, the giver of the servants. They were not seeing themselves correctly. They were not seeing their ministers correctly, and they were not seeing, most importantly, their Lord correctly. And so Paul is going to give them a solution, a cure to their division. And his, his solution is basically this. Stop yielding to the flesh. Stop giving yourself to your flesh and have a proper view of God's ministers and their work. And the, and the question that naturally rises from that is how? How should they have the proper perspective? And I think we're going to see very clearly from the text, it is through their relationship to Jesus that they are to, they are to relate to one another and their ministers correctly. That was a mouthful. They are to see their ministers, through their relationship to Jesus, they were to see their ministers God's way, is what I'm saying. The Corinthians did not belong to Paul or Cephas or Apollos, and they needed to see that they belonged to Christ. And this is a challenge for us this morning. How do we see our leaders? How do we see our ministers? Do we see them the way God is calling us to see them? And if we do, and knowing, not knowing our hearts, but knowing the church in general, I think we have a good view of ministers and what they're called to do. But let us stay on guard, Berean family. We have new pastors and new leadership. Let us stay on guard that we don't fall in this trap of seeing our ministers incorrectly or, or, or giving them fame and glory that we don't deserve. And the only way that we can do that is by relating to Jesus, following Jesus correctly, keeping Jesus' perspective, our perspective. That's the only way that we will keep our leaders in their proper place. So why were ministers viewed incorrectly? Notice what Paul writes in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. He's going to tell us why they were seeing their ministers incorrectly. He says, but I, brothers, cannot address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk and not solid food. Does anyone else here think that's kind of funny? He says, I couldn't give you solid food. I had to give you milk. To me, it's, it's hilarious. Not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. That's very important for us to see. Paul says, you're still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are we not being merely human? So why were they seeing their ministers incorrectly? Well, number one, it was an outside influence of the world. The culture that they lived in made much of man. The culture that they lived in exalted man. It had man at the center of their worldview. And without a question, the Corinthians were giving in to that worldly influence. 
But it was not only this outside influence of the world. Secondly, it was also this internal battle. Paul says that they were still of the flesh. They were giving in to their sinful nature. We know that when someone is born again and comes to Christ and accepts Christ, they're giving God's spirit in a new nature. But all of their old nature, all of that sinful, corrupted nature is not totally eradicated. It's not totally taken away. And we have to live life in the spirit and not give into the flesh. And Paul is saying that that's what they were doing. They were giving themselves to the flesh. What is the flesh? I like to say the flesh is that part of us that just can't get right. That part of us is always looking to the world and its desires and its behaviors and wanting to conform to the world or even just sinfulness. Paul says that the Corinthians, they were immature. They were not surrendering to the spirit of God and following the spirit, but they were giving in to their sinful nature. And one key fruit of the flesh If you want to just kind of really see the essence of the flesh, the flesh loves to act out in pride. And Paul is going to pull on this in chapter 4, verses 6 to 8. Look at what he writes. Chapter 4, verse 6 to 8. I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. You see that? They were puffed up against one another. There was pride in the church. Verse 7, he says, For who sees anything different in you? And what do you have that you do not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Already without us, I'm sorry, without us you have become kings. And notice, by the way, Paul is being very sarcastic. He said, already you're rich, you're kings. Notice what he says at the end, and would that you would reign so that we might share the rule with you. Paul is being sarcastic, but the point is the Corinthians were a proud church. Proud was, pride was a part of the problem. Why were they seeing their ministers incorrectly? They were in the flesh. They were giving in to their sinful natures. They were being controlled by sin and pride. They were immature, and so they were seeing their ministers incorrectly. Who in your life you are, seeing, you are seeing incorrectly because of your flesh? Who are you seeing incorrectly in your life because of your flesh? Maybe children, your young people, you're seeing your parents as dictators and, and bosses and not as loving people who are called to nurture you and love you. Are you in your flesh when you see your parents? Or what about husbands? Are you in your flesh when you see your wife? Are you seeing your wife incorrectly? Maybe you see her as a a slave or a maid and not as this woman loved by God and called to humbly submit to you, one who needs your love and nourishment. The flesh can cause us to see people incorrectly. Or maybe it's our ministers. Maybe you are seeing one of the leaders here at Berean incorrectly. The flesh can cause you to do that. Excuse me. What about singles? Maybe you're single and, you're, and through the flesh you're seeing your boyfriend or girlfriend incorrectly. You're treating them as though they're your spouse or you're, you're, you're married to them when you're not. The flesh can cause us to see people incorrectly. And if you can't say amen, maybe you need to say ouch. The flesh causes us to see people incorrectly. So how should we see our ministers how should we see the leaders that God has given us? 
Well, Paul is going to paint many pictures of a leader, and I want you, please, lean in to the text as we look at these pictures of ministers, starting in verse 5 of chapter 3. Notice what Paul writes. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believe as the Lord assigned to each. This word servant here carries the idea of a table waiter, a busboy. No one who's famous and exalting in themselves, but someone who's serving others. And Paul wants to make it clear that there is no boast and glory in man when it comes to the Christian faith. The only boast and glory is for Jesus Christ and him alone. He said, we're just servants. We're just servants assigned to do a task. Notice in verse 6, he says, I planted in Apollo's water, but God gave the growth. He said, we're just farmers. I'm planting seed, he's watering, but we're just servants. We're just farmers in God's field. Notice what he says in verse 7. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. And what Paul means here is that in comparison to God, these ministers are nothing. In comparison to God, they're totally dependent on God, and without the blessing of God, nothing happens in the church. But we have a faithful father who often blesses the works of his ministers, but he does so in a way that all glory belongs to him alone. And let us be clear that if anything happens at Berean, if we grow as a church, if people's lives are transformed, it's not because of me or Dan or Phil, it's because of God. These servants of God are instruments in the hand of God. Psalms 127, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. And so that's something we have to stand on. Notice in chapter 4, verse 1, he uses another term. It says, this is how you are to regard us as servants. Maybe your translation says slaves of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And this word here is different. Servants here or slaves here is different than in verse 5. This here is the idea of a slave, a galley slave, someone at the bottom of the boat just rolling the boat alone. They're not, they're not boasting. They're not receiving fame. They're just serving. It's in total contradiction to what we can find today in, in some churches, even in our community where you pull into the parking lot and right at the front door at some churches is the pastor's name with a plaque on it. This is the pastor's parking spot. Is that who ministers are called to be? No, we're servants. We're slaves to the truth of the gospel and to the service of God's people. Not these big shots or to be lifted up and exalted. We're just humble servants and slaves. He uses the word stewards in verse 2 of chapter 4. Stewards is this idea of someone being in charge of a household of another. And we're stewarding, ministers are stewarding the mysteries of God, the truth of God's gospel and his Christ. So that's what ministers are doing. We're stewarding God's truth, advancing God's kingdom. Do we see ministers that way? And not only that, it's important to notice that leaders and ministers are often called to a life of suffering. Notice what Paul writes in chapter 4, verses 9 to 13. He says, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like man sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are 
fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but us in disrepute. To this present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed, buffeted, and homeless. And we labor, working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slander, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world and the refuse of all things. Notice, we know that the apostles had a unique calling. And they suffered in a very dramatic ways. Many of them martyred and crucified and beheaded for Christ. But if you look through church history at leaders and ministers of the gospel, often it's this story of suffering, this, this story of hurting and enduring the shame of the gospel in this broken world. So who are leaders? They're people called to suffer. They're people called to suffer. I don't know. I just think of being a minister. That's humbling. What God is calling me to, he's calling me to, to this life of not glory and fame, but of hardship and suffering. And, and I think I can speak for Dan with one of the hardships and one of the things we carry burden the most is the life of our people. When our people are caught in sin, when our people are struggling, we suffer that. We think about you. We love you. We pray for you. And this is Paul's idea that he's going to capture next because spiritual leaders and ministers are also shepherds and spiritual fathers. Notice what he says in chapter 4, verses 14 to 17. I did not write these things to you to make you ashamed. We're in chapter 4, verses 14 to 17. I did not write these things to you to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. And there Paul uses the strongest word for love, agape. In this sense, agapo, you are my agapo, children. I love you with the, the sacrificial love. Verse 15, for though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ through the gospel. Excuse me. Somebody pray for my dry mouth, please. Verse 16, I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved children in the, in the Lord, to remind you of his ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Paul, and again, we know Paul was an apostle. He had a specific calling. We don't have apostles today, but we do have those who preach the gospel and people come to faith. And then in that sense, ministers are spiritual fathers leaders and shepherds. God calls ministers and leaders to shepherd his people, to nourish them with the word of God, and even discipline them if it fits, and they're living in contradiction to God's word and in, in constant sin. So who are our ministers? The shepherds and spiritual fathers. We need to see them correctly. We need a holistic view of a minister, and Paul has just given it to us. But it's not only important that we see our ministers correctly. Notice also we must see their work correctly. What are they doing? And notice what Paul writes in chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. He says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. And some el someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care of how he builds, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Ministers are engaging in a serious work, a serious work. 
Why? Because as they build, as they work, as they proclaim God's gospel, they're doing so upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. When Paul laid the foundation, he declared the life of Christ, his perfect sinless life. And when Paul proclaimed the foundation of Christ, he proclaimed the death of Christ, how he became a substitute for sinners, how he gave himself for sinful people like you and me. And when Paul proclaimed the foundation, he proclaimed the glorious resurrection of Christ. He laid that foundation that if anyone trusts in Christ and turn from their sins, they can be eternally saved. And Paul laid down a lordship salvation that we not only believe in Jesus in word, but in deed and in following him. And so that foundation is the foundation of all churches. But then notice it's serious because any work being done is built upon Christ himself. This is a serious work. And it's also a work to be taken very carefully. Paul says that let each one take care of how you build. In Spanish, we have a saying, it's just this idea of cuidado, cuidado, when someone says something inappropriate or when someone is doing something. So this is the idea here, be careful, cuidado, be caution. This is a serious work, and we need to be careful how one is building on it. And what's important for every one of you to see is this is not just a call to ministers. This is every believer. Every believer, because you are in Christ because you belong to Jesus, everything you do in your life in Christ's name is serious work. What do I mean? Well, you're parenting. You are parenting in the name of Jesus. And if you're not building on the foundation, if you're not using Christ and his gospel to shepherd the hearts of your children, be careful. Or even children, young people, as Christ, you wear Christ's name when you go to school. You wear Christ's name in the public. Are you representing him correctly? This judgment is not just for ministers, but it's for workmen. In your business, do you honor Christ? Are you building on the foundation? Are people seeing your efforts in your life in harmony with your Savior? It's important. Cuidado. Be careful. Everything must be in harmony with Christ. Why? Maybe you're wondering, why? Why should we be so careful? Paul goes on to tell us there is a judgment. Verse 12 through 14. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation of gold, silver, precious stones, I think these are things worthy of Christ. A wood, hair, straw, I think these are things not worthy of Christ. He says, each one, be careful. Verse 13, each one's work will become manifested for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one, again, I don't think this is just for ministers, each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on a foundation survives, he will receive a reward. Now, this is not a judgment of sin. We know that sin was judged on the cross of Christ. Amen? And so this is not a judgment of sin, but this is the believer's judgment of their works in their lives. And it includes rewards. And I don't know about you, but the greatest reward that I can ever receive is kneeling before my Savior and hearing him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And so Paul is saying, be careful. Judgment is coming on how you live for Christ. But I think the, the main reason why he's pulling on this idea of judgment is because the Corinthians, they were judging the ministers. They were judging the ministers and they were playing favoritism with the ministers. Notice what he says in chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. 
I know we've been in a lot of scripture this morning, but we need it. Amen. Chapter four, verses three through five. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself for when I for I am not aware of anything against myself, but am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, he's talking to the Corinthians. Notice he's saying, therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from the Lord. Again, the Corinthians, they were judging each of these ministers, and they were putting these ministers against each other. And some of them were probably excluding Paul's ministry on account of being in the Apollos camp. And so Paul is trying to correct this judgment. He's saying, don't judge before it's time. And so what Paul is telling him is, don't just see the church as a place where you judge the ministers and cause division, but instead see God's church as a serious work, building on the foundation of Christ, whose ministers will be judged by God himself. That's what they are to do. And that's what we are to do. Many of us may feel the temptation to criticize our leaders. Maybe after a sermon, you feel critical. And you say, you know what, I just didn't get anything out of that. Be careful. Instead of criticizing your, your pastors and your leaders, understand that God will judge them. This is motivation for us to turn every criticism into a prayer. Don't criticize, pray. Why? Because God will judge these leaders and these ministers. How do you listen to a sermon? Do you, do you sit down and listen with a prayerful spirit like, God, speak to me. Let me hear you. Let me apply this. Apply this to me, Lord. How do you listen? Or are you listening with a critical ear? You know, he messed up on his grammar. No, listen with a, with a prayerful heart. And if there's something to critique of your minister, there's a place for that. But ultimately, pray for your ministers. Who are our ministers? They're servants. They're slaves to the truth of the gospel. They're just instruments in God's hands. They're suffering shepherds who will be judged by God. This is, this is heavy. It's sitting on me now more than ever in any other of the messages. This is who ministers are called to be. It is a serious work. And in light of this, Paul, Paul now will apply his argument. Notice again in verses 18 to 23, we've seen this at the beginning. Let's apply Paul's argument first. We need to see our ministers correctly. Paul says in verse 21, so no one boasts in man, for all things are yours. And what Paul means is don't boast in your ministers. You don't belong to them. You belong to God. Don't boast in them. See them correctly. They are gifts given to you by God to serve you and build you up. That's who your ministers are. You need to see them correctly. Secondly, <clears throat> excuse me, let me drink some water here. Secondly, Paul says, Paul encourages them to abandon the wisdom of this world. That's the way to eliminate divisions in the church. Abandon the wisdom of this world. Verse 18 of chapter uh, 3. Let no one deceive himself. If any among you think that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he might become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. 
what does Paul mean when he, he's saying the wisdom of this world, the wisdom of this age? What is he talking about? We need to understand this if we're going to apply it correctly, right? And so he, by no means is he talking about just the laws of mathematics and science. Two plus two is true in the church and outside the church, right? So he's not talking about the laws of mathematics or science, but he's talking about the key issues of life. Who made us? Why are we here? What's right and what's wrong? How can we go to heaven? What happened to us after we die? How can I know God? How can I be happy? How can I be satisfied in these key issues of life? Whenever the world speaks, it speaks foolishness. So don't listen to the world. When the world tells you how we are to see our ministers and they say, make them celebrities, we say, silence. We're going to take the word of God. So Paul is saying you must abandon the world's wisdom. Renounce the wisdom of the world. And the world is speaking to us, isn't it? It's speaking on many issues that are key. For instance, the world says it's okay for same-sex marriage. But what does God's word say? He says it's between a man and a woman. And you know what a man is. You know what a woman is. This is God's truth. The world says divorce is okay. If you know it's not working, find another. What does God's word say? And so the point is abandon the wisdom of the world and embrace the truth of God. The world says that, that beauty and, and, and money defines worth. Do you believe that? My young people here, do you believe that? That if you're beautiful and you have money, then you're worthy, that you have worth. Do you believe that? It's a lie. We need to embrace the wisdom of God and abandon the wisdom of this world. Thirdly, and this is probably most importantly, if divisions are going to be eliminated, they need to see their relationship to Christ correctly. They need to see their relationship to Christ correctly. Verse 23, you are Christ. My wife gave me a grammar lesson this past week of how the S worked with the apostrophe. And the, the idea here is Christ, you are his possession. You belong to Christ. The cure for them and these divisions were to believe that they belong to Christ. That they, that they were Christ and not Apollos, not Paul's. They belong to Jesus alone. What does it mean when he says all things are ours? You belong to, all things are yours, and you belong to Christ. What does he mean? Well, he's not preaching some prosperity gospel. He's saying that under the sovereignty of God, God causes all things to work together for your good. You belong to Christ, and Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth. And as king, he causes all things to work together for your spiritual good. That's what he's saying. The Corinthians did not belong to Apollos or Paul. They belonged to the exalted Christ. Why would they, the point is, why would they look to man? Why would they look to man's wisdom when they belong to Christ? Don't look to the world. Look to Christ. It's the main point Paul is making here. You belong to Christ. You don't belong to these men. I want to close with a, with a quote from the Heidelberg Catechism. Somebody is like, Cata what? It teaches theology through questions, and it has a question and answer that we really need to lean into this morning. Here's the question. What is your only comfort in life and death? 
answer that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm not my own, but I belong to Christ. This is so important. Whose are you? If you're not a believer here today, you don't belong to Christ. If you've never accepted Jesus, you don't belong to him. And we would love to talk to you about what that means to become a possession of Christ, to belong to him. But for believers, you belong to Christ. And you must keep this perspective in all of life. This is a truth worthy of building your life upon. It's not only the cure to division, recognizing whose we are. It's a cure to a lot of issues in life. Your identity in Christ, you belong to Christ. May this be a foundation we build our lives upon. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is truth. In a world that talks about relative, no truth, a world that has abandoned truth, we have your truth. And you will sanctify us by it. And so I pray that that's what has happened. That's what's happening for the listeners online. Sanctification, conformity to Christ is happening through your word. And God, we do want you to receive our praise. Receive our lives as offerings, God. And thank you for the greatest gift we have ever received. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.